I spoke at a church in LA at one time. It was so formal and so complex that they had walkie-talkies. They had a little thing that you were to go up at, you know, 913.2, and I thought, I like this much better. So. <laughs> hey, I have the enviable job of teaching the part of Exodus because Pastor Albert told us to distribute the book of Exodus among ourselves, Miguel and I. You've probably, some of you might have heard Miguel at night. And so Miguel says, I think, you know, you're the older guy, so you should take the harder assignment. So, and then when he pulled a knife on me, I agreed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm usually the one that carries the knife. Um, but I decided to teach this morning on the law. So if you fall asleep, we'll hurt you. But seriously, I'd like to talk to you about the place of the law in the book of Exodus and my job is to kind of show you how it functions and how maybe the law would be terribly helpful for you today. So let me just give you a little bit of background stuff. If you look at the book of Exodus, say this is the whole book, 14 chapters are the call of Moses and the salvation of the country. And by chapter 14, they have walked across the Red Sea and they have been saved. Then chapters 15, 16, 17, 18 are the traveling to Mount Sinai. Then 21 chapters, well over half of the entire book of Exodus, is law. And you go, oh, so boring. Let me see if I can explain it to you, though. Okay. Years ago, I was in a very terrible state. I was in the state of unmarriedness, okay? And I was bound to singleness, and this woman decided to free me from singleness, okay? And we got married, okay? And pretty traumatic experience for me. I was up all night. I don't know what she was doing. You know, I, didn't, you know, I can see now why you have bachelor parties. You're trying to keep the guy from running away. And I was pretty, you know... You know, oh my God, my whole life's going to change. And on down the line, freaked the guy out. I spent, you know, my best friend, he goes, he didn't get married for years. He says, if Bruce was that afraid, this must be scary stuff. But chapter 19 of Exodus is God scaring the daylights out of Israel. And we don't have time this morning, but if we read it, you could see the mountain was filled with fire. And then these trumpets got louder and louder and louder and the smoke was bellowing out. And then the sound came that frightened them all. The healthiest thing for a marriage, especially for a male, is to be frightened. You say, oh, how crass. Oh, but how helpful. Then, what happens in a marriage? You do the ceremony. What happens after the ceremony? You feed them. There's a meal. Guess what's in chapter 24? The elders go up to the mountain and have a meal before Yahweh. Then what is chapter 20, the great Ten Commandments? Really what it is, it's the essence of the vows. You guys have probably gone to weddings right? I take you as my lawfully wedded wife to what? To have and to hold, for richer, for poor, for what are all those Sickness and health, forsaking all others, and on down the line. 
what those things are, are you are swearing to some basic principles that will guide a healthy relationship. There cannot be any healthy relationship if the man is not loyal to the woman or vice versa. There can be no healthy relationship. There's not going to be some solidity till death to us part, sickness and health, you know, good times and bad times. You have to forsake all others. You have to do these things. These are the parameters of the relationship. So what's happening in chapters 19 of Exodus to 24 is Israel is marrying God. And the vows or the substance of the vows, is the Ten Commandments and the little group of laws called the Covenant Code that follow it. Okay? So here's, in essence, what the law could be understood as. How do I live with God in a way that we have a healthy relationship? Because the Old Testament is all about relationship. Now, you say, no, Dr. Bloin, Jesus seemed to have been really upset with those Pharisees who were big people in the law well no that's because they had moved it into a series of legalism that's actually quite foreign to the old testament and jesus was saying you've misunderstood my father's book it's all about relationship and of course the biggest relationship in our lives in our families is marriage so god chose to use that as a metaphor for how to understand his relationship to us we are married to him and he is committed to us, and he wants us to be committed back to him. And then, of course, you know, my first week of marriage, we got home from the honeymoon. I worked in this really low-paying job that worked 70 hours a week, Christian job, you know. And we had tons to do. I got home, and I left. Went to work. I came home. My wife's in tears. And I, I said, what happened? She goes, you left without saying goodbye. I thought, So? I never said goodbye to my roommates in the morning. You know, I was in college, you know. We didn't even go, dude. You know, we didn't even do any of that. We just left. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, there's all new ways. This is different. Do you know what I mean? And on down the line. And, and it was quite an educational experience for me to learn how to live with a different person in different ways and how to do things on down the line. She figured out right away I have no taste in clothes. In fact, I'm somewhat of an embarrassment to myself if she lets me out in public. And so she bought all the clothes. She soon learned I like black, blue, shades of blue, different colors of blue, and blue. <laughs> you know, if you buy bright reds and yellows and stuff, Bruce will never wear them. In fact, if I ever come home and there's a bunch of yellow shirts, I know she wants a divorce. <laughs> I also learned that she likes C's candy, but only dark chocolate. Okay? And certain kinds of dark chocolate. So I always carry in my wallet dark raspberry creams, number, I gotta get this reprinted again, number 33, dark butter creams, number whatever this is, I can't see it without my glasses, dark marzipan, dark nougats, and I have all this, so when I bring her home, and then she often says, you know, you need to keep up, she updates this for me, okay? <laughs> and you say, why do you do that? Why don't you just buy her a car? I like her, I want to keep this thing going, okay? And so a decent relationship, you need to know how the other person thinks. You have to love the spouse you have in their currency. I remember the first time I came home with flowers and she said, 
I don't like cut flowers, they just die. Oh, okay. <laughs> she wanted potted plants so she could kill them. But we learned, do you know what I mean? Now she's become a much better gardener and on down the line. But you learn how to relate to one another. What Yahweh is doing is saying, I'm going to give you a catch-22. I will save you from your slavery, bring you out of slavery. And of course, we understand that slavery could be the slavery of sin. I'm going to bring you out, but I want you to know how you can live in relationship to me. I know you need protection. I know you need loyalty. I know you need comfort. I know you need all these things. You need land. You need dignity. All these things he's going to give them. All the things we really need as humans. And he also promised them health, which we've later learned, if you follow the law, actually increases your health. All those laws that they didn't understand in the ancient world, he gave them all to those. Um, Jews are not allowed to eat shellfish. You are aware that if you eat shellfish at the wrong time of the year, when the water temperature is wrong, there's a poison in the shellfish that could kill you. Okay? Well, they didn't know those things. They didn't have thermometers in those days, so Yahweh thought it might be wise just to keep away from shellfish for a while. But the laws have a catch-22 in them. It doubles back on itself. To please him, you have to follow these laws. But when you get done, you realize the laws actually don't bless God, they bless who? You. To be in right relationship to my mother when I grew up, I had to be polite around women. Had to open the door, and boy, if I didn't, oh, all would break loose. You walk one step behind on the outside, and boy, you had to. But the first time I went on a date, oh, I knew exactly how to act. So why was she teaching me all that? For me. She taught me how to work. I remember one time I got this real kind of, this girl was cute, wanted to impress her. I was at my uncle's church up north, and one of the guys I knew who knew her pulled me aside and says, young man, I like you. I thought, ooh, that's going to get back to that girl I like. you know. And he says, uh, you know why I like you? You have a good work ethic. I went home that night and I thought, who made me learn how to work? It was my mom and dad. You see, the laws God gives us are primarily actually for us. Just like when I'm raising my children, my children liked candy, like their dad. What if I let them eat nothing but candy all the time from one to 12 years old? What would they be like besides hyper? Well, they would come up and go, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they'd have no teeth. We made them eat vegetables. For whose sake, mine or theirs? Theirs. I did have a friend who didn't have good parents. He was a kid in my youth program that I used to work in. Dad had died. Mom was barely keeping it together. And he always drank Coke. He would nurse a Coke all day. She never stopped him. And after a while, all his teeth were black. Half of them were gone. If he opened his mouth, there was just stumps, and they were all black. And I thought, oh, someone should have given you a law I mean, this guy drank Cokes all day long. And he would keep it kind of in his mouth. You know, he would just, and then they just rotted his teeth out. So the purpose of the law is to continue your freedom and embellish it. God saves us from our sins, then gives us laws that if we follow, will free us even further.
That make sense? Would you like a few examples? And should I pick some weird ones? I love weird laws, okay? Let me give you one you've probably never heard a sermon on. Something you, of course, always practice. You cannot eat meat from a calf that's boiled in its mother's milk. <laughs> that's relevant today. Come on, Dr. Blaine, are you smoking funny cigarettes before you come to church? No. <laughs> Why is that a law? What relevance does that have now? You say, you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk. That's several times in the law. And then one day I was in grad school, the teacher just, ah, well, of course you know this one. Of course we didn't know it. And he stopped and he said, well, in the ancient world, if you wanted to get into the occult and you wanted to contact the dark powers, you have to reverse creation, which is still today, if you go over there in Berkeley and buy all the stuff on witchcraft, they'll teach you all of this. It is by nature that a small kid is nurtured by its mother's milk, right? So what these people would do in Palestine is they would boil the kid in its own mother's milk, therefore reversing creation and opening themselves up to the evil side, to the occult. And the Jews were to stay away from the occult because their laws were meant to bless them and bless creation and understand it. And all the Jews knew that. Have you ever gone eating with Jews and they will not mix milk and meat? You ever notice that? And we think that's silly. That's actually going back to this law of saying, we understand that we should follow nature and then we don't need to play with the occult. And then there's lots of subtle laws in the Old Testament that we don't make as much sense to us today, but they are laws that would keep you from the occult. Sometimes Christian parents have unconsciously interpreted these laws wisely and tell their children, don't play with Ouija boards. Because I had a friend whose daughter played with Ouija boards, and then the nightmares of demons came and all kinds of stuff. And so the Lord says, stay away from the occult. It's attractive. It's fun. It's power. And if you've not played with the occult, you don't know the power that's there. If you want to play with it, I would encourage you not to. But the Lord was just saying, now, all the people around you are playing with the occult. And then eventually they would sacrifice their own children in sacrifices. And he says, why don't we stay away from all that, just follow my law, and you will move in a freedom from the occult that you would never have otherwise. And you ever heard the one, no tattoos? You ever heard of that? Okay. I looked that one up for you and give me exact. This is in Leviticus. It's actually in Deuteronomy in several places. But in Leviticus 21, verse 27, let me read to you what seems to be a useless law for the United States of America in 2013. So here we go. It says, you shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard, and you shall not make cuts on your body for the, you see it there, it's in 1928, you shall not make tattoos or mar your body for the dead. In that world, the occult was so spread that they lived in absolute terror of death. They felt when Auntie Sally died, do you know what I mean? She'd probably come back to hunt them. And so they began by their religion, as soon as you died, then the men would all go in a very stylistic thing that we no longer have record of how they did it. They would carefully cut the corners of their beard and they believed that would keep them unrecognizable by the death spirits. Or there were certain 
very specific types of tattoos you would put on your face and it would make you invisible to the death spirits and therefore you would be free of this absolute, absolute fear of death. So years ago, growing up unconsciously with these laws taught and then mediated through the church, years ago I was picked up by my friend who was giving me a ride to work. Well, not my friend, he was my cousin's friend. And he was giving me a ride to work. And I thought, cool, I'm with Lance. I'm 15, I can't drive, I'm not a great athlete. Lance is maybe the greatest athlete on the planet. And he's picking a punk up, and he's so cool, he's so cool you know, compared to me. And I was so proud to ride to work as a 15-year-old in Lance's car. Who, and he was doing that as a favor for my cousin. He was my cousin's friend. So we're coming to work, and we lived on a part of town that was, in, if you've ever been to Fresno, it's called Whitesbridge, and out Whitesbridge is where most of our cemeteries are. And so we came across, and all of a sudden, a hearse went by, and Lance goes, oh. I said, what's that? What's, why'd you do that? He says, oh man, that's a hearse. It just scares me. I thought, why would a hearse scare you? It's just an ugly car. You would never take a date out in that car. They're just ugly. Then I began to realize that this tough, great athlete was very afraid of death. And I was taught, death is death. When you die, you meet Jesus. I don't need to fear death. You know, not that I want to die. There's nothing to fear. And so the, in the early church, when they first began to get a hold of what the law was doing, people were robbed constantly. So the desert fathers first radical Christians of the 3rd and 4th century, when they would travel, they would sleep in cemeteries because all common people were absolutely frightened to death of cemeteries because they were inhabited by demons, which in probably a matter of fact they were. So the Desert Fathers would always sleep in them, cemeteries. They would often get in the cemetery and work loose a headstone, push it over and use it as a pillow. Go to sleep. And then there's a great story told in the desert. The demons saw they were just totally angry that a Christian monk was in their cemetery. So they began to make noise and stuff. And the monk got up and said, shut up, I'm a Christian. Went back to sleep. Because he moved in a freedom from the devil, from death, from the occult. That were simply taught by these laws. And then the church always began to teach them, do not be afraid. You belong to the king. So once you don't give in to fear, you control fear. So by the time of the Roman Empire, the Romans called the Jews atheists because they were so free of superstition. And the Jews would mock, you guys are so bound by superstition. We just follow the king. We just do what he wants. We're free of all that superstition. We're free of all that fear. We move and operate in a freedom that was meant for us. And that was simply taught them through these laws. Don't be afraid of the death spirits. And once you probably were, as a Jew, living in a culture and didn't tattoo your face when someone died, all probably your neighbors look, oh, oh, you're so vulnerable. And then you go, no, I'm not. I'm obeying Yahweh. And then all of a sudden you realize there's nothing to fear. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. And then the fear would actually begin to leave the community. I did have a friend who was very involved in the occult. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, Do you know that you live and move and work? Actually, where I work, he says, You are near the great cult centers of negative spiritual power in the city in which you work. I said, Really? He says, Yeah. 
what do you feel when you're on the corner of this and this? I said, probably should love the kids I'm working with more. What? He says, what about this corner? What do you feel? I said, nothing. What about this corner? Nothing. And he shook his head. He said, you are so protected and you're clueless how protected you are. We were meant to be free. The God of the Bible wants to free us from our sin and then make us more free. And that's where the law comes in. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you one more. You ever heard of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? That's in Exodus 21. And we think, oh, how crass. Well, that law is actually spread all throughout the Middle East in the higher cultures. And let me explain what that really means. When I was a junior high kid, I was walking home, and I was a seventh grader, and like most seventh graders, you're a little bit stupid and a little bit arrogant. And I'm walking down one of the side streets, and by me comes a car driven by two unbelievably cool, tough sophomores in high school. And as they went by, we were walking down the middle of the street, me and my little junior high buddies, and as they went by, because I'm an idiot, I stuck my finger out, you know, because they'd care if they hit us or not, but they drove right by us, and, you know, I went and put my finger out, and it just brushed the car, and I thought, cool, I'm brave, I touched a car while I was driving by me, which is stupid. <laughs> but as they drove by, all of a sudden, boom, they hit the brakes, three big, huge high school kids come out, and they come right at me, and they go, what'd you do to our car? I thought, oh, I really ruined it with the really harsh finger of mine. And they were going to beat me up. You say, well, they should. You put a finger on their paint job. You say, was that eye for eye? No, that was my whole body. <laughs> Here's what the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc., etc., means. First of all, you need to know, in Jewish law, physical marring of someone is expressly forbidden in the law. So, you could never knock someone's tooth out if you knock their tooth out. Physically torturing someone is against Jewish law. Now here's what they meant. Eye for an eye, not a body for an eye. Tooth for tooth, not kill them. Or simply put, the punishment must fit the crime. Does that make sense? Because in ancient society, as well as America, if you hurt or insult the bully, he doesn't insult you back. He drags you into the bathroom when you're a little kid in grammar school or junior high and beats the tar out of you. It's never eye for eye with the powerful. They always take more. And these laws were meant to be fair. And we have thrown a lot of laws out in California when we think our penalties don't fit the crime. It was too much over. And the legislator thought about it long enough and realized we're out of whack here and on down the line, and it's built into the very fabric of American law. The punishment should fit the crime. That's going back to Exodus 21. Because a healthy society is healthy if they have fairness or freedom. Are you aware that in the ancient Jewish society, if you're a Jew and you borrow money, you are not allowed to be charged interest? You go, why? Because the standard interest rate in the ancient world was 40 to 60%. And when you borrowed a little bit of money, you usually for the rest of your life went so far in debt that they eventually then could enslave you. And so they said, no, to a poor man, no interest. You know, someone could afford it, that's different, it's a business deal. But to the poor, you can't 
crush them when they're already down because the God of the Old Testament doesn't believe in kicking a dog that's down. That's wrong. And so when you're down for a while, you need to borrow some money to make ends meet. No interest. So then you could work and eventually have your own freedom again. And you say, what an interesting law. Well, let me show you something more interesting. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 23. And this kind of shows you some of the balance that's here. Exodus 23. Look at verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. In other words, if you go to court and a poor man's suing you, the judge is not allowed to be partial to the poor in a law case. But then look at verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to a poor man. So how come those verses are seemingly contradictory? Or are they actually complementary as opposed to contradictory? In other words, and what do we say in America? You should be equal before the law. In between those two verses are two very strange laws. And here they go. Actually, we have a law like this, I think, in California. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, it is the law that you shall bring it back to him. So what would that look like today? Well, let's say you're driving down the 880 you know, after church, and you see a car, well, not 880, you can't pull over in the 880. Um, all right, some other road, okay? And you see someone from work, that's just a jerk. You know, and they make your life miserable and they've got a flat tire. So, what are you supposed to do according to Exodus 23.4? Pull off close to the side, roll your window down and go, suckers! <laughs> and then, boom, go on. Are you allowed to do that? What do you have to do according to the law? You've got to help that idiot. There have been more people won to Christ by kindness than punching him in the face with biblical truths. Think of the people you know that have converted, and if you're a convert not raised in the church, think of who really influenced you. Was it the person that beat you in an argument? Or was it the person who just, for some reason, was kind to you when you didn't deserve it? Look at the next verse. And if you see the donkey of someone who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, part of being a Jew, you had to put aside any personal animosity someone had towards you or you towards them, because it goes both ways, and you have to help. And does Jesus ever say this? Put your bullet in Exodus 23. Go over to Luke chapter 6. Let me show you how Jesus handles the law. I remember reading this verse years ago, being quite upset that it was here. But chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 27, it says, But I say to you who hear, those of you who are capable of listening, love who? Your enemies. Love the person that treats you poorly at work. Love that relative that you wish was in someone else's family. Love that religious relative of yours who's so filled with hate and yet they quote the Bible all the time. You have to love them. By the way, I'm completely convinced 
that when God made the world and the way he's designed it, that idiots are carefully placed in all corners of the planet. <laughs> How many of you have idiots in your life? Right? You have to love them. Then it gets worse. Let me read the more on this. Jesus is taking the law and showing you the very heart of it. You have to do good to those who hate you. It gets worse. Then you have to bless them who curse you. If they're talking behind your back and gossiping about you, what are you supposed to do? Behind their back, say the good things if you can find any. Whoa, that's, that's hard. And I hate this one. Pray for those who abuse you. Because, you know, I do pray for Albert, for Katie, you know, some of you I know in this audience, and I've prayed for you many times. And it's fun. You are great people. I think the world of Albert and Katie. I'm very proud of them. Happy with what they do. But this verse says I have to pray for who? But... Guess what happens when you pray for your enemies? You become free because you are bound and crippled when you still hate the people that have hurt you. And this is the law from Jesus. By the way, look at verse 20 of chapter 6. Who's he speaking to? You see it there? It says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, So if we've been saved by Jesus... We're now one of his disciples. He has saved us from our sins, but he wants to give you more. He wants you totally free. And you're never totally free till you forgive. See, Dr. Bloom, have you ever been really hurt? Yeah. Did you just forgive him right away? No. How long did it take you one time? Two years why were you so slow? Because I'm sort of stupid sometimes. What happened during those two years? I'll tell you some really cool things I did. Every time I was in a meeting, they were a supervisor in this place I worked. When I'd walk in a meeting that I know they would be there, I'm usually smiling. I like people, and I usually enjoy my peers, you know. But I made sure I didn't smile when I was around them. So I made myself miserable, and I showed them. Let me show you something, though, much more dangerous. One time I was confronted by a peer who said, here's, I think, how you should handle this. I followed his advice, and the freedom began to grow. I got free, and I was driving down the freeway one day, and I remembered what they did to me, and all the anger returned. So I had to pray and pray and pray and pray before I got off the freeway and killed someone. You know, Got off, was totally upset that I'd lost the battle with forgiveness so prayed and prayed again then you say then it was all over no then it would come again two months later but it was a battle and finally when it was won I remember walking into a class that remember life and teachings well I walked into class I opened the thing there was 61 students the thing was jammed okay and as I opened the class and I began to open Jesus's words I could sense something move across the room, and it was the Spirit of God. And I thought, whoa, look what he's done. And then the Lord whispered to me, Bruce, I would like to have done this for two years, but you blocked me because you wouldn't forgive. Because you can't preach what you don't practice, can you? 
So he not only wanted me free, he wanted who else free? The people I dealt with, and he wants me to be free. See, the law is actually to bless you further. And when you read the law, like what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You guys know those? (laughs) Ah, it's Old Testament, we don't read that. So go to Exodus 20, and we'll take a look at that. If you've got your bulletin in 23, it should be a couple pages over. And we'll do a couple of these. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I'm not God. I'm who? Your God. You are part of me, and I'm a part of you. I'm your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here comes the first law. There are to be no other gods before me. You don't know how many times I have been freed by putting God first. Maybe one of the greatest things in America to do, and some of you I know have struggled hard with this because you're living right near the center of it. I know some of you have struggled. You're not sure you're very close to winning. My wife and I, when we first got married, we talked about this constantly, is there was a competing God right from the beginning. Even though we had hardly anything, this God still had quite a grip on us, and it's the God of materialism. And it is so hard to get free of it. The only way to get free is to be loyal. And he's got to come first. Then you begin to break that. And then... Guess how many laws in the Old Testament tell you you have to help the poor? Over 200. And then there's about 200 allusions to it. If you don't help the poor, you and Yahweh can't be friends. Because guess who really likes the poor? By the way, what does Jesus say? Blessed are the upper class. What's he saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in Luke. Although poor can mean a lot of things. I think last week when I was here, as I listened to my sister speak, she was poor in some things. And that moved, was used by God to bless her in an uncanny way. But her poverty was, at times financial, at times other things. But poverty can be a blessing. And then most of all, We need never to walk away from someone that's poor. That's essential. He says, don't make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is on heaven above or earth beneath or that under the water of the earth. You don't have to bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I am jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You say, what do you mean no images? We don't have idols here Regen, and I don't know Christians that struggle with idols. Let me kind of explain to you, though, what an idol was. An idol was an image of the deity that someone would create for the purpose of inviting the numinous powers in the ancient world to locate themselves in that idol. And once these powers were located, then you could petition those powers to help you and the idol was a way of you capturing the god so that you could manipulate it so i teach at a christian university we have kids who think if they sit in the front row and when they play music if they go like this and raise their hands and look spiritual 
that Jesus has to like them. And some do it sincerely. Some are just doing it for manipulation. Because as soon as they leave chapel, they live horrible, selfish lives. And we have kids that think Jesus will have to love them because they went on a mission trip. And I had a missionary one time that told me, he says, you know, Bruce, he says, it seems like Americans forget that when you change continents, it doesn't change you. And going on a mission trip will make you no more closer to Jesus than, you know, living in a garage would make you a car. And we often try to manipulate Jesus either through offering or through service or through something like that. And that's manipulation that's like the ancient idol worship. We're not supposed to manipulate Yahweh because would you want to get married and your wife always knew or your husband always knew how to manipulate you? Would that be a good relationship? So don't try to manipulate God. What if you need something? What are you supposed to do? Ask. When my fourth child was born, I was a grad student and poor. And I asked my dad for a certain amount of help. It was about five months of it. Guess what he gave me? Ten. You say, what, did you like uh, butter him up or this and this? Or, no, no, I just asked. He's my dad. And if my son needs something or my daughter needs something, if they ask, they'll get it. In fact, what I've learned with my dad is not to ask too many times because he'll never say no. Because he's my father. Now, if I asked for something that would hurt me, he would say no. When I was a 16-year-old, I said, Dad, I want to buy a used car Mangia. That's my first car. I said, could you help me find one? And, you know, because he knew all these car people. And I just wanted to use one. He goes, no. Come on, Dad, these are cool cars. Uncle Wayne's got one. No. I thought, oh, cruel, cruel parent. Now, within the next two years, I got in two major accidents did some really interesting redesigning work on the 101 freeway on the Haskell turnoff. There were some rails that were in the way of my doing these super wide turns in the rain while I was sliding. And I took all those rails out, plus half the side of my car. And then one time I ran into a steel pole in the fog and put a B like this down the, the front of it. But the car I was driving at my father's insistence was those huge, heavy steel cars. And that's why I'm here alive today. If I was in a Carmen Ghia, I'd be fertilizing daisies somewhere in the cemetery. <laughs> so you can't manipulate my dad, but you could ask. And sometimes if you ask God, he will only give you what's good. And the same thing here. Don't try to manipulate him, just ask. And of course, he's free and wise to give you what's good for you. But don't manipulate. And then you're to honor the Sabbath. And I've often struggled with that one. Thought, oh, that's so legalistic. Until I worked in the onion fields 80 hours a week and I took Sundays off, I was reminded every Sunday that I was still human. Then I began to realize why God made those laws in a world that was primarily agricultural because it protected the laboring man from abuse. And then one day I got a phone call from the head of the company and they said, um, we want you to pack seven days. I said, no, six. Well, the market's hot, six. Come on, no. The harvester next to me went seven days. I outproduced him in six. I began to run the numbers, because you know you have to do that when you're in business. You always gotta know what your numbers are, what your production rates are. I ran the numbers. I began to realize I had unbelievable numbers on Monday, 
And as the week went on, they got lower and lower and lower. And my worst production per hour was on Saturday. Then I realized once they had a break, they were ready to go on Monday. And in those six days, I outproduced the guys that worked seven days. Because after a while, these guys were just exhausted. And I was exhausted. Then I began to see that God gave this law to bless the laboring man so he couldn't be abused. And then I began to realize he ate it for all of us. So like a very intelligent man, my first time I was a pastor, I never took a Sabbath. And then one day I preached on the Ten Commandments, and one of my elders, he wasn't a Christian, but he was a good man, and he, his wife was, and his wife knew she would be happy if he served in the church, so he served on church boards. But we became friends. And one day he made an appointment with me, and he sat down, and he says, Hey, pastor, this big, huge guy named Vahe. I thought it was Armenian for, if you shake your hand, he will break it. But I think it meant something else. I said, yeah, Vahe, what do you want? He says, uh, like to talk to you about your hypocrisy. I said, well, what's that, Vahe? He says, you preached on the Sabbath, but I noticed you never take one. He says, I watch, I'm here in the office all the time. I see how hard you work. He says, you need to think about this. Three days later, another deacon comes in and he sits down, very kind man named Peter. Peter looked at me and says, you know, Bruce, we really like you being here. You never take a day off. You're going to burn out. And we don't want to lose you. And I thought, well, I'm ordained. <laughs> Guess what happened after about 14 months? I began to make mistakes that hurt the people because I was so tired emotionally. I never took a break. I love to preach for Albert if Albert gets a break because Albert works hard for you and he needs a rest sometimes. He needs a Sabbath. He needs a break. And you know Albert. You know how hard he works. He'll be back. He'll be coming here. He'll preach richer and stronger because you need a break. You need a break from work. We need holidays. In fact, what do you think those festivals were but mandated holidays? In fact, some of them had to travel to Jerusalem and some of them had to sleep outside in the Feast of Booths with your children. How cool is that? The laws were meant to free us. Now, one thing, and we'll close. I know plenty of Christians who are raised in Christian homes, they go to Christian college, and they rebel. A lot of them are pastor's children. And let me show you why they rebel. What comes first, Mount Sinai or the Red Sea? The Red Sea. The Red Sea symbolizes, in Exodus, salvation. The law, the morality, that would free us, and the disciplines. You have Christians in church who don't have a very good relationship with God because the order's mixed up. They got the law before they got salvation. There's a lot of kids who are pastor's kids who have been raised in the church, and they've never been saved. And so the law to them is a burden. But when you're a convert, you want to follow the law because you're in love with God. You sensed his freedom. You sensed his forgiveness. And you're so excited and you go, guy, what can I buy God for his birthday? Well, how can you? He's the God of the universe. He owns everything. Well, I'll praise him. He's got angels that are a lot better at it than you are. So how do you please the Lord of the universe? You follow the law. So law in Exodus is response to salvation. 
since you saved me, how can I say thank you? I'll follow what you would like. Then I don't realize that years later, all the time, following what you like blesses me. But the original reason we obey the law is because God wants it. And we're doing it because we love him. You say, why do you buy those C's candies so there isn't hell at home that are dark chocolates? No, no, no. I actually like this woman I've married. And it makes me happy to make her happy. She says, why does she buy her the shirts with the right colors? I think she likes me. I said, well, she's following laws. Yeah, yeah. But laws don't have to curtail a relationship or damage it. Laws become a way of expressing love to one another and guidance. That's what they are. And then, you know, you have to get creative when you read the law because they wanted you to. That's why it says eye for an eye. You had to creatively understand that and apply it to your culture. And so as you read the Old Testament law, if you don't understand one, Albert knows everything. He'll explain it to you. <laughs> and the ones you do understand, then on your own, you are to creatively apply them to your own life. Because when you do so, you're doing it to please him and say, I love you. And this pleases you. This pleases me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the people at Regen. As I've gotten to know some of them and talked with them before the service or met them at different situations, I am so thankful that this church exists and these people exist. And Father, we ask you to bless us by letting us see the law. And sometimes if we can't understand Exodus, all we have to do is pick up the Gospels because you're repeating it. In, in words that maybe are more understandable to us now. But Father, bless us as we follow your laws, not because we're trying to earn our salvation. That doesn't work. We're following them because we love you. And Father, give us the memory of this to go back and always say, this is for you. This is how I love you. And sometimes when the feelings are gone, that'll keep us going. Father, bless us as we go today. Bless our children. And bless all those who we would love to bless, because we ask this in Christ's name, Jesus' name. Amen.